Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In each episode of the Bridge Builder, we help you translate your Catholic faith into missionary discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is my co-host, Rachel Herbeck, Minnesota Catholic Conference Policy and Outreach Coordinator. Rachel, are you ready for another great podcast? I'm ready. I feel like they just keep getting better and better. They do. And that's, of course, thanks to you. You put up with me, and I'm, for that I'm <laughs> grateful. First of all, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM for the use of their recording studio and to our sponsor for this episode of the Bridge Builder podcast, the Minnesota Knights of Columbus State Council. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we are talking with a great woman of faith uh, and a great witness for the pro-life movement, Gloria Purvis. You may also recognize her from EWTN's Morning Glory radio program, or as the upcoming MC of our own Catholics at the Capitol event in February of this year. Following our conversation with Gloria, we'll have our classic Catholic social teaching segment. We're going to do something a little bit different today, given its importance. We're not going to talk about a document uh, with a long and distinguished past, but one that's uh, almost recently, just recently released called Open Wide Our Hearts. The Enduring Call to Love, a pastoral letter of the U.S. bishops against racism, which was developed by the Committee on Cultural Diversity in the Church of the United States and by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Finally, in our bricklayer segment, Rachel will share a little bit about some practical tips for living faithful citizenship as this legislative session continues to get off the ground. Rachel, what are folks going to hear about today? Yeah, so as Jason just said, and as we talked about in our last podcast, if you tuned in, we are starting up our legislative session here in the state of Minnesota. So we're going to talk about some practicals surrounding that, specifically um, you reaching out to your legislators in the context of legislative session and, and what's the impact of that and, and how do you do that? Outstanding. Well, let's get right into it. Joining us on the line now, uh, you know her well as the host of EWTN's Morning Glory. She's also the chairperson of Black Catholics United for Life and RMC for Catholics at the Capitol 2019, all the way from the greater Washington, D.C. area. Ms. Gloria Purvis. Gloria, great to have you with us. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jason. Hey, Rachel, how are you guys doing? Hi, Gloria. Thanks for being on. Glad to talk with you guys. Now, a lot of people were introduced to you at the first time when you were a speaker at Catholics at the Capitol in 2017. But for those listeners who weren't there and who aren't familiar with your radio program, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in media ministry and really what you hope to accomplish by getting up so early every morning and talking about the faith. <laughs> I hope to get to heaven, if, and if not directly to heaven, shave off some time in purgatory. That's right. <laughs> Well, I'm originally a Southerner. I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina, and I ended up moving to the greater Washington, D.C. area for love. I, I'm a husband <laughs> from this area, so that's why I live here. Um, you know, it's so funny. When I think about how I ended up uh, in media ministry, it's only a path God could have really made work, because my background was not in journalism or media or anything like that in college. Um, my professional career before I you know, um, left that full-time was, was in financial risk management, like dealing with counterparty risk, credit risk, derivative risk management, and things like that. So nothing at all about television or radio or, you know, writing or books or articles. But um, the Lord had moved me um, during Mass. I was at Mass Day in the Creed, and I said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And I had what I could only call 
a mini chastisement. <laughs> and believe me, you don't want that. Uh, it was basically... What <laughs> That'll I be a hard pass. <laughs> That'll be a very hard pass. So when I heard those words, when I said those words, I heard something say interiorly, are you lying? Are you blaspheming me? Are you... How could you say you believe in the Lord and giver of life while you do nothing to protect the innocent gift of life, you know, um, on earth as being destroyed right now? And how can you expect to present yourself and ask for the gift of eternal life? Mm. So, yeah, wow. <laughs> I fell to my knees during Mass. It was, it, you know, I'm saying it here like joking, but it was quite intense. It was very brief. Um, and at the time, I also, um, it's the strangest, it's hard to describe, but being able to, to see and know when people are unworthy for communion, oh, it was just, it was just not, not experienced in point, let's just say. But... Mm. Out of that moment, I also then had this, what I can only call, call very intense desire to know what the Church taught about homosexuality and all the things surrounding contraception, abortion, sex, love, marriage, all that. I had like a, oh, just this desire to learn about it. And um, and that sort of set me on fire to try to rediscover what I was never really taught when I came into the Church at the age of 12. So I, I went back to try to understand better some of the church's teaching. And um, the funny thing is, is um, I'm not a shy person, um, and I've made myself, I just felt, I don't know, just called. And so it was all these opportunities around those topics started presenting themselves, whether it's in work or, you know, when I went to see a doctor or, you know, being invited to events to talk or just actually being involved in ministry at the church, dealing with other young adults. Um, just having a lot of opportunity to then begin to share on these what people consider difficult topics. And, um, you know, it's funny, after you say yes, all these opportunities just start popping up. Once you say yes to God, He makes things happen. Mm -hmm. And it was from that constant witness of being out there in front of the abortion clinic or, you know, talking with uh, mothers in need and trying to get them set up with uh, support services and things like that, or talking to people about, you know, chastity, teaching, natural family planning, um, it, it, opportunities came to uh, start speaking at parishes and doing more media, and then um, I was, of course, very active in speaking about what I thought was wrong with the health and human services contraception mandate, and uh, then some opportunities came with EWTN, and they asked me to do a radio show. At first I said no, because it's just too early in the morning, and I'm not a morning person, but my husband, wonderful man that he is, is like, girl, you don't know what the Lord has planned. You get up and you go down there. <laughs> and um, I was like, I don't want to do it. And he's like, stop being lazy. I will help you. <laughs> so that's really how I ended up doing an early morning radio show. I mean, that's my roundabout way of getting us to there. So, yeah. Sure. Lots sure. of support from the Lord and then lots of support from my husband and then, of course, opportunity presenting itself. So. Yeah, I love that because it's just so that's so characteristic of the Lord and how he works. Right. Like I remember when I was growing <laughs> yeah. up, my dad used to say, if you could see if you can see the path where you think your life's going to go, I guarantee you it's not going to go that way. <laughs> of Just the ways that the Lord brings us, we can't imagine. But I love, too, in your story, how how it integrates so much with your personal faith and this beautiful turning turning point for you that led to all these 
these yeses and these things was really you being open to the chastisement of the Lord in the context um, of a personal relationship with him. And that actually led you um, to work on all of these different social issues. And I, I think that's beautiful. But can you talk a little bit, Gloria, about your experience and the work that you do? And you mentioned all of these different areas um, that the yeah. Lord was bringing up for you. How have you seen, um, how has your experience really taught you different things about maybe the challenge of evangelization today and maybe even speaking oh a little gosh. bit to the connection between these social issues that we see because sometimes people tend to silo like this is my faith this is my personal relationship with God and then here's these social issues over here can you talk a little bit how maybe in your experience you've seen those connect as well well I, I remember one time when I was uh, in corporate America and this woman came up to me she was talking about how you know she's Catholic and how her husband just hates <laughs> you know when it's January because then the priest gets all political talking about mm. abortion and somehow that she thought that abortion was strictly a manner of politics and the church should have nothing to say about it and that she didn't think it was a, an issue that had uh, that morality would come into play and the fact that everything pretty much can be a moral choice or a moral act, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so what I'm seeing is people just don't think that certain things will have consequences for their eternal souls. They just think, okay, I go to Mass on Sunday, I do my hour, you know, I'm a good Catholic, but nothing, it doesn't permeate their life. And in fact, I find that a lot of people are illiterate when it comes to faith. And what, what, I say, what I mean by saying illiterate, I'm not saying they can't read or write, but just even the language of the Church or even our understanding of, of, of what it means to be human is so, like, speak, like these people don't even know what you're talking about when you start to talk uh, these things with them. So I find that I have to use um, just very practical ways of speaking to people. Like, um, for example, like if I talk to young women, sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll talk about, you know, how difficult it is with the dating scene and this and that and the other. And, but when they're talking about dating, they're talking about having sex mm-hmm. with whoever it is that they're seeing. They're not talking about, you know, going out to a movie or, or doing other non-sexual activities. They're talking really about a sexual relationship with a man who is not their husband. And um, so, you know, so I talk to them. I try to get, so what does that dating involve? And they look at me like they want to use these code words. Like, you know, don't make me say it. (laughs) And sometimes I have to have people break down and explain explicitly what it is that they're referring to. Get them from behind all the fences they put around what it is that they're actually doing. So there's a lot of coded language that sort of separates people from what it is that they're actually doing, because people of faith, that they start to talk about what it is they're actually doing, they kind of have this kind of, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, it's much safer to use coded language like dating or things like that, or or, or we're interested, or, um, you know, I'm liberated, you know, all these sure. kinds of things. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. You know? Is that what I also find is once you do have these heart-to-heart, honest conversations with people and ask them, are they happy? You know, a lot of women, I say, you know, you're, you're buying into society sort of mantra that, you know, live your life, you know, treat your body like a merry-go-round. But, you know, they, and they come to know that this is true. I say there's lots to go around, but very little merry. You know, when you start to go by how society is telling us what it means to be a liberated woman, a lot of these women are unhappy. A lot of these women feel used. A lot of these women don't see any other way to get a man except, you know, doing these highly immoral behaviors. 
that we know are not going to lead to happiness. You've not only been a, a leader and a leading voice on these things, but you've worked in the organizational context as well, and you are a chairperson of Black Catholics United for Life. That seems yeah. to be, given the origin of Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger and the oh, yeah. abortion rates uh, in the African-American population vis-a-vis other populations in our country, that seems yeah. to me an important component of the pro-life movement today. Tell us a little bit about that organization and your work uh, with Black oh, yeah. Catholics United for Life. What is their message and their unique contribution to the pro-life oh, movement yeah. in America today? Well, I think there was a lot of... Um, so I used to be involved with the National Black Catholic Apostolate for Life and was really pushing very heavily for more Black Catholic involvement in the March for Life. And I'll just be honest with you. I got... Uh, from another priest, I got message that Father James Good was like, I know what you're doing and who you are. And it didn't seem to be a really welcoming one, as if I was overstepping my bounds by trying to get their, the National Black Catholic Apostolate to be really serious and focused about abortion in the black community. I mean, uh, to do an event, uh, I put on it in the diocese here, June, being abortion awareness in the African American community. And then to see the National Black Catholic Apostolate one is make um, like gun violence and things like that, uh, you know, sort of, in my opinion, diluting the uh, the impact of abortion and the seriousness of it. I thought, you know, this isn't the way, this isn't going to be an organization for me anymore. And so um, with some other very um, devoted uh, black Catholics, I decided we needed to start Black Catholics United for Life because there wasn't enough emphasis um on the violence of abortion in our community, and there wasn't also enough emphasis on teaching the beauty of what the church the church teaches mm-hmm. about marriage, about sex, about family, about the human person. So not only talking about abortion because it's legal. I mean that's that's mainly because it's legal is why it's different from gun violence. I mean everybody can understand. You know, you shoot somebody down dead, that's murder or homicide or it has or manslaughter right it has these legal terms that make you realize this isn't a good thing but for abortion which is legal it is a very bad thing but it has the veneer of decency because the law is a teacher and some people confuse that and think well abortion can't be that bad it's legal mm-hmm. so that's the why we, i have such an emphasis on talking about abortion instead of things like uh gun violence okay because we know gun violence is illegal. Illegal gun violence is illegal gun violence. But this particular threat has a veneer of, of decency because it's legal. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have such an emphasis on abortion rather than some of these other threats to, to our community. So anyway, with that said, um, being able to go and actually minister to people, talk to people, particularly Catholics, we share the same faith, right? We have the same creed which means we are supposed to believe the same thing about the innocent human life in the womb and Mm -hmm. about loving the mother and caring for people in difficult situations. But we don't, at least in my experience, I hadn't heard much about it. You know, I hadn't seen anybody like me talking about it. And so that uh, led me to say, you know, we have to do something. And then I worked with Jackie Wilson here in the Archdiocese of Washington. She used to be the head of the Office of Black Ministry, is what it was called at the time. Mm-hmm. And she gave her full support and backing and really helped me get Black Catholics United for Life started. And so it's, this goal is to increase the number of Black Catholics involved in the pro-life movement, number one, by helping people understand the problems with abortion, uh, especially from perspective of our Catholic faith. Um, help people get involved and recognize what's happening legally in their area, 
to try to, um, you know, dismantle abortion. And also what's available in terms of, like, uh, crisis pregnancy help in the area, as well as in the Church's teaching on human sexuality. And then, of course, prayer. So it's a lot. But these are the things that, you know, we have to do. And for those who are interested in finding out more about Black Catholics for Life, you can reach the organization at e- via email by writing us at Black, B-L-A-C-K, Catholic, the number four, life at Mac, M-A-C.com. So Black Catholics for the number four, life at Mac.com. I think it's really interesting what you said, Gloria. One One piece of that that I found really interesting was the distinction between when you were talking about the gun violence and abortion and how because abortion is legal, there's this veneer of um, that it's not that bad. Right. And so it kind of slips under the wire. And Jason mentioned, you know, at the at the beginning of his question, you know, if you really look at the roots of Planned Parenthood and even now look at where Planned Parenthoods are located or these kind of the ways that they target, it really is just this under the wire um, in a lot of ways form of racism that people don't see because yeah. it's it's veiled and it's hidden. And so kind of on that vein, um, you know, something we want to touch on with you is that racism is an issue that has really reemerged um, at the center of public discourse. And, you know, the, yeah. the USCCB mm-hmm. just put out this pastoral statement on, on the topic. And yeah. and so first of all, just your maybe just your general thoughts on that. But also, how is the racism today similar or different than in the past? And kind of what are some things we can do to combat it? Huge question, well, but go, well, go. Well, I will say this. How it's similar is that people are still going to hell. Sure. For this sin. That's the number one reason you know, we need to consider and talk about racism. People are going to hell for this sin. Mm. I mean, I, I, I can't, under, I, there's nothing more important than where your soul ends up for eternity. And people do go to hell for the sin of racism. It is a threat to your eternal life with God. Mm, yeah. That's how it's the same from then to now. Right. And I think that's the, the biggest thing that people uh, need to recognize, whether it was in the past through things like, um, well, I mean, just the whole status of the black person not being human and, and not being treated with the respect and dignity they deserved as people made the image and likeness of God, not being allowed to participate in the civic life of our country by law, not being able, not being even considered a whole person. And then from that, all the indignities and injustices that flowed from that in terms of how black people were treated. Okay, so we, we understand that. But I don't think people understand how that same evil, once embraced and, and perpetuated and enacted in this country, is a stain on us. And we still see the repercussions of that evil even today mm-hmm. with things like uh, Planned Parenthood being considered so wonderful in, in, in an organization with people not recognizing its roots are evil. It, its founder was a eugenicist and her whole goal of getting, quote, the Negro Project done was to stem the tide of, of black birth. Mm-hmm. You know, and she used a language. She said, we don't want them to know the real truth about why we're doing this. So they couched it in terms of, you know, you know, it's better maternal health care to space your children to this, to that. You use words that sound so good, but when you look at the ideology behind it, it's neither good nor sound. But isn't that how evil is? Mm-hmm. I mean, evil's never going to come out and show you its ugly face. I say sometimes evil has a sweet face, and that's where discerning and understanding our faith will help us to not be deceived by, by the lies by groups like Planned Parenthood. Um, and it's, it's the, the things that were, that Margaret sang of this, the same tricks that she used are now being considered, uh, 
a sympathetic way to deal with the poor black person. I mean, you wouldn't, they say, you wouldn't want this poor woman of color to have to struggle through a pregnancy, you know, that she has no care, nobody to help her. And then on the flip side of it, the underlying messages, and you certainly don't want to have to pay your, have your tax dollars go to them using, you know, any kind of public assistance, right? Sure. So it's, it's all these things that Margaret Sanger said, you know, we don't want a lot of them around and we shouldn't uh, provide charity. She said, why would you give charity? I'm paraphrasing, you know, charity to, to weeds. I mean, these people are weeds, you know, they should be torn up and thrown away. So she even didn't like the idea of charity because she thought it was cruel and wasteful to give it to people who were undeserving, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning not worth living. Mm -hmm. And so you see this, uh, the same sort of, I call it a, like a, I don't know, a gentleman's racism, I guess, the way they try to say mm -hmm. things in such a loving tone. But underneath it all is your, your life uh, of, a, of this person, this poor person, this poor black person. This life is not worth protecting. This life is not worth living. And there's something inherently racist about that, in my opinion. Um, the other thing that I would say is the, the otherness of the person that we see today more than anything. While we may not have the same kind of laws barring uh, kinds of participation, you do have, um, I guess, like an otherness, like, like people saying, you know, what's wrong with me wanting to have live in a community where it's all people like me. I mean, that sounds good, but what they're saying behind that is we don't want those, that person, these other, these different kind of people here, as if these different kind of people automatically would be, you know, criminal, would bring some kind of evil or misfortune, you know, to the community, which is a sad statement, you know, that we have these sort of assumptions that there's nothing good about somebody who's completely different from myself racially. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic. Now, another thing, let me just say this. Um, when we see, like, the kind of, um, I don't know if people are aware of it, but the kind of voting irregularities that we saw in North Carolina, North Carolina is not having a problem where they realize that, you know, going door to door in, in black neighborhoods and telling people that you have to collect their absentee ballots <laughs> to turn it in for them, you know, that's illegal. And somehow these absentee ballots of all these black voters never made it into being counted when they were trying to decide who was going to win for that district. Yeah, these kinds of things still happen. That's racism. Mm -hmm. When you want to disenfranchise people from having the right to vote because you don't agree with who they may, you know, elect in office. Yeah, that still happens. Can you believe it? In 2018, that's a racist policy in action to disenfranchise a whole community of people. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just some of the more uh, concrete examples. Now, I will say in the open wide our hearts, the enduring call to love, the pastoral letter against racism, they were very broad in the definition, and I and understood why they did that. But what they're trying to get across to people, I think, is to explain in the very many ways how racism exists. I think they were trying to convince people, look, racism does exist, and racism is a sin. And they try to go at it at many different angles. They try to help people understand that racist acts are sinful because they violate justice. And so people think, well, what is justice? Justice, from the way I understood it, is justice is making sure every person gets what they are due. Mm -hmm. And anything racist that denies a person what they are due just by them being human is sinful. They also talk about, um, they likened it to Cain and Abel, when you don't 
accept that the person, although they're different from you, is your brother in Christ. They are made in the image and likenesses of God as well as you are, and therefore there's a brotherhood between you because of that. Um, I mean, the document is, is, is interesting and, and useful, and I think it's helpful for people to read. And I also think it's interesting that the USCCB is trying to raise this now because they want people to recognize this is serious, and you can lose your soul over it, and none of us want to go to hell. So let's let's start thinking about how we can combat racism and how we can, if we have these beliefs or, or sentiments or practices in our life, that we too should try to eradicate them as well, because we don't want anything to separate us from heaven. And these are things that we choose to do that can separate us from from God from going to heaven. Gloria, well said, and you, in that answer, talked about some of the individual dimensions of racism, the sin of the human heart that the document discusses, but also some instances of institutional racism and the racial disparities in many instances and contexts that result from that. I want to ask you a question a little bit out of the box here and get your thoughts on it in the sense of today, a lot of the animosity, the otherness that you talked about between different groups um, is fueled by kind of a radical identity politics, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. a member of this group or that group, and we t- hear yeah. about things like intersectionality, which seems to be producing an equal and opposite reaction and a sort of resurgent white nationalism. But yeah. and it's it's given people kind of an allergy to this idea that race is you know something that we should even look at or take seriously, and that race yeah. can be a, an important part of identity, but. Thinking about what it means to live an embodied life, or you know, we talk about theology of the body, but what about a theology of the embody of embodiment that understands us not just from the belt down or the belt out, but uh, belt up, but also the skin out too, so that (laughs) you know who we are as you know people of different races and ethnicities. This is not, you know, it's it's accidental and perhaps in the philosophical sense when we talk about substance and accidents to who we are as human persons. But, you know, God has made us and created us in this certain way and in this certain place with this certain, you know, skin color. So how, right. how do you approach that issue? You know, what is a theology of embodiment that takes race seriously in terms of our identity that maybe can transcend this sort of false either or race is irrelevant, we should live in a colorblind society to race is everything and that defines who I am, right? What's the, what's that, yeah. how do we transcend that false divide, Gloria? You know, that's a very good question. Um, I will tell you this, to talk about that racial, the, what do they call it, identity politics, that's a really hard one for me because, you know, I think about things like the civil rights movement. I mean, it was, uh, and I think about the survival of black people is because we wanted to integrate, but recognize we have this black skin that is considered problematic. And so as a means of survival, really, we, and, and shared, a shared situation, uh, we had communities that had to support each other. So we had this racial identity thrust on us. You know what I mean? Not to say that I'm not proud to be black or anything like that, but I also recognize it as a matter of my survival to know that I'm a black woman going into some place that, I could lose my life because of that. You know, um, I remember driving through downtown Silver Spring and seeing an ad on a, on a, an art house of um, somebody putting on a play, and it was by an African woman, and she said, I didn't know I was black until I came to America. You know what mm. I mean? So there's something about the being of this particular skin mm. that you have a particular experience in the United States that even 
foreign black people to come here like, oh, I didn't know I was black till I got here and started to experience things that they'd never experienced before. And it's hard to explain. Um, it's, it's very hard to, it's, it's, to me, it's hard to explain. So that's why I struggle with things when the people are like, oh, identity politics is ba- are bad. And I'm like, you know, yes, when it's negative, but I also understood the, the politics of the civil rights movement was an identity politics movement because the experience of black people was something, their experience was because of their skin color. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that you had to go out and say I'm black, people could just see it. And even in the United States, when you go to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, they talk about it's the first time that slavery became race-based and permanent. You know, and so it, was, it, it morphed into something that it hadn't been previously, but it morphed into this color-based system that was for life in the United States. And I think some of the sentiment and ideology and evil from that um, permanent uh, casting of black people as less than or as, as um, you know, <laughs> not worthy of freedom is something that, you know, seeps in with us today. But that being said... I I don't want to go into a society where, you know, oh, I don't see color because that's kind of ridiculous, right? I'm like, that's like going into a garden and wishing that the garden didn't have any variety. And so, you know, I think of us as all little flowers that God creates, right? And how beautiful is it that this flower is that color or this one's this height? Just the creativity of God, you know, I see in the variety of the human person. And so I delight in it. It's like, to me, it's like seeing... The artist, the great artist, who is God, what he did with the creation of the human person, right? And um, the beauty in this embodiment of God's love, right? And um, so on that end, you know, I see, I guess to me, seeing all the differences in people is, to me, an expression of this very loving, creative God. It, it's something to wonder about, you know, when I when I look at each person, you meet different people that don't look like you, don't sound like you, don't eat like you, <laughs> you know, there's just some, some beauty. I don't know why, but to me, it's like I have like this awe of God's creative power still showing itself, you know, uh, in his creation today among human people. I mean, I think that's beautiful. It's too bad that we don't see the beauty in that, right? Instead, some people are repulsed or turned off or afraid or angry. Right. Instead of being like, ah, oh, look at that, you know, <laughs> when it's at least that when you see people um, living their true selves. I'm not talking about some other things that people talk about identity that's contrary to what it is to be a human person. I'm talking about authentic human identities. Um, now, in terms of how do we get past the two, the extreme racial identity that's one that's rooted in a hatefulness, I guess I'd say, um, versus this kind of embodiment? as That's a great question, Jason. Uh, the only thing I could think is, um, gosh, when you meet each person, can't you see them as a unique creation willed by God? I mean, I think that's such a different outlook, right? Um, and when you do see that perhaps there are groups <laughs> by whatever characteristic that they are treated a particular way that's unjust, that maybe what, in, what compels us to want to remove the injustice is love. You know, the love for the other person that is just very much you have for yourself. We are called to love our neighbors, right? And so I would think that hopefully love would compel us to want to speak out against these injustices, not just because it's unjust, but also because they're a human person made in the image and likeness of God, and we love them, and we love God, and that should, 
I think, motivate our actions. Now, about intersection, intersectionality, it was a coin, a, a phrase coined by, um, I can't remember her name, it was a black woman that was trying to talk about being black and being female. And there were certain realities in living this way that we experience. So there's an intersectionality there. And I could only explain it that at the same time, while we're black, we deal with racism. As women, we also deal with sexism. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, gee, isn't that fun? But, you know, I have to understand that there's some realities that even with black men, particularly, uh, you know, treating black women in way that, ways that are not respectful or that are sexist, quite frankly. Uh, that so black women had these sort of dual uh, challenges to deal with and navigate. So that's a way, I think, to help people understand what intersectionality originally started out as. You know, the conversation was supposed to start out from there. But it's morphed into something quite different, you know, as I see some people talk about intersectionality as a means of um, who's more oppressed. Mm-hmm. And, and that is not at all, uh, I think, the original, what the original meaning or intent for discussing intersectionality was about. It was about navigating the realities people face, um, you know, certain things that they may have to deal with, um, but not about who's more oppressed than who. It was nothing like that. Gloria, while this conversation has been a pleasure, we could go on as you started to make the argument for biodiversity, human diversity, but, but most but most importantly, human dignity. And you are a passionate defender of human dignity and your ability to speak to it from the context of race, but also in the context of the unborn as well as powerful. And it's why you are a leader, not just in the African-American Catholic community, but in the Catholic community generally. Uh, you are a really powerful uh MC at the Convocation of Catholic Leaders in Orlando a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. And that's why we are blessed to have you as the MC of Catholics at the Capitol 2019 on February 19th, 2019. For listeners there, be sure to catch Gloria and our great lineup of speakers and uh, inspirational guests and musicians even uh, on February 19th. But Gloria, a pleasure to be with you today. We're looking forward to having you at Catholics at the Capitol. Thank you for all you do in defense of life and human dignity. Yeah, thank oh, you, thank Gloria. You. It was an honor to be with you all, and uh, thank you for the, the shout-out. Glory to God is all I can say, because <laughs> I'm not that great, believe me. So thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure, and thank you, Rachel, as well. Thank you. Thank we'll you. see you soon. God bless okay, you, Gloria. Bye-bye. 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 We're back with our classic Catholic social teaching segment, and if you've been listening uh, to the previous discussion with Gloria Purvis and our intro, you know that we're going to take a little bit different uh, approach today and talk about uh, an important new document and teaching tool from the U.S. bishops, Open Wide Our Heart, a pastoral letter against racism. This is not the first time the Catholic Church in America has collectively addressed this issue of racism. This, in fact, is the fourth national pastoral letter dedicated to the question of racism, the last one being in 1979, though, interestingly. And then um, a discussion that sort of, I think, uh, flew under the radar, as many people imagine that we'd entered a post-racial or colorblind society. But in in recent years, this question has emerged again, and thus the need to address it anew and consider it in its new context. Uh, Importantly, looking at it both from the standpoint of individual sin, and that's Mm -hmm. an important reminder, is this is a racism is a sin, mm-hmm. right? And it has consequences for your soul because mm-hmm. you are attacking the dignity of every human person. And any attack on life mm-hmm. is really a deep, deep sin. But also it has 
a social dimension in the sense that it is um, we see the problem of racism and the many racial disparities. And of course, there's, those are complex questions, but the fact that racial disparities should make us look at and think about how our society is structured and the institutions we build and support that lead to these racial disparities. And that's kind of the message that um, this, oh, this important letter has to share with us today. Yeah, I think that focus and it it dovetails exactly what what Gloria was saying and also in relation to this document, just of the focus on, as you said, individual sin. And I think sometimes, um, especially because this is this is reemerged and with some things happening in the culture, um, there's been a lot of discussion. And I think sometimes we just think of racism as this like ideological idea you know it's just like another thing and like yeah we know it's bad but we don't think of it in the context of sin um, of personal sin and something that requires conversion of heart because it's an attack on the human dignity it's a failure um, to do justice and an attack on human dignity one thing i love that the bishops doing here is they use that um that verse from micah um you know the book of micah and scripture where in the old testament and it says um this is, you know, this is what the Lord God has commanded you to do. Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And they, there's parts where they kind of use that as a framework um, for this issue. And just digging deeper into that framework, making that important distinction between that, the way in which we look at other persons, mm-hmm. right? Are they other persons, as Gloria was talking about earlier, created in the image and likeness of God and all their mm-hmm. uniqueness and all their diversity? And do we love them appropriately and treat Mm -hmm. them, you know, as a child of God? Or do we treat them as other, another Mm -hmm. person who is a threat to us in some way, whether it's a threat to my economic security and a threat to my cultural stability or well-being or some reason why this person is there as a threat uh, in my life because they're part of a group that I see as problematic or I see as um, difficult to deal with. And this evil, as the bishops tell us, manifests itself in our individual thoughts but also in the workings of society and mm-hmm. as part of the bridge builder in the context of connecting faith in a public life, that these things do manifest themselves in how we build our institutions, how mm-hmm. we nurture our institutions. What are the assumptions that we bring into those institutions? Why is it that we allow uh, abortion clinics to be mm-hmm. uh, placed in poverty stricken neighborhoods with large minority populations, mm-hmm. right? Is, doesn't someone have, uh, doesn't that trigger any concerns for anyone or is that right. that latent racism that allows something like that to go on. Why is it that our schools are funded and supported that the way the way they are um, based on property taxes, for example, and right. what are the challenges and pitfalls of that system? What are its benefits? But the reality of so many children uh, of persons of color trapped in failing schools, mm-hmm. right, where they're not getting the resources and the attention they need to succeed. What are some of the challenges there? Gloria mentioned the voting. We still have voter suppression in 2018 mm-hmm. when many people thought that went away after the Voting Rights Act in 1965, still discrimination in housing based on housing codes. So this continues to manifest itself in in a lot of ways. And we can look at the racial disparities and see how those play out. And again, those are complex discussions, but there are still things that are clearly contributing to those issues and racism today in 2018 and 2019. Mm -hmm. And I think the connection between the individual sin and the systemic problems are really important because I think, you know, this issue really shows um, and proves how much we're not um, 
no matter how individualized our society is, we're not individualistic people. We're not just individual people existing on our own, but we exist in the context of a community. And so when these ideas spring up in our hearts and these these sins spring up in our hearts, they affect the community and then eventually affect um, businesses and all, you know, all of these different things. It seems so obvious to say it out loud, but we don't always think of it that way. You know, it's not that, oh, nobody's having struggling with this individual sin, then all of a sudden we have these systemic problems of racism, but it really shows for us the connection between where we're at with our conversions and how that affects society at large. And it's it's fascinating to hear, too, um, you know, the way in which uh, Gloria discussed it, that race is still part of our, it's a almost a unique thing in our national consciousness, sure. um, something that plagues, plagues Anglo-American societies. And countries that stem from the British Commonwealth in particular, their Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunate history of the slave trade and everything else, but the way in which racial identity, um, you know, still is a a common factor in our culture here and how that manifests itself in a number of different ways. But Mm -hmm. the challenge of that is that, you know, people want to say, well, you know, this is discussions of race even cause division, right? Like you're, you're bringing this up and this causes more division and things like that in society. But the reality is is that yes racism is not what it was you know decades ago right there's sure. not the the extreme cultural division social division around it the the layers and layers of systematic oppression that existed even as early as, you know, even as late as 40 and 50 years ago many of those have been dismantled and praise mm-hmm. god we have a we've had an african-american president now mm-hmm. um culturally african-americans are leaders for mm-hmm. example but it's still a phenomenon, and in fact, it's a debt and a credit, or it's a credit to our society that we can still talk about these things, and we should be talking about these things. And there's a lot of pressure within the culture to continue to talk mm-hmm. and to eradicate what the the church calls this original sin of our country. Right? Mm-hmm. Is our country, whether we want to admit it or not, was founded by men <laughs> who owned slaves, right. and that's something that has to be dealt with and grappled with, right. um, and acknowledged and it's something that we always need to have in the in the forefront that it's, it's a com- it's a problem that continually needs to be overcome in society. Mm-hmm. And to really in that not only to have the conversations in our own communities, but we really need to be encountering people, you know, so someone always remains other if I don't encounter them, you know, so they're always this other this far off thing until I encounter them as a human being and I encounter them, whether it's in discussion or, you know, at the grocery store or whatever to sort of say as a church, how are we encountering people? How are we fostering an environment of encounter where people can, you know, obviously come and feel welcome and have some of these discussions, um, but then also see themselves in the church, in that environment. That's right. And, and one of the great benefits of this moment uh, in terms of the church's engagement on this question of racism is not only just this document that provides uh, important points of reflection, but the many, many, many resources that have been mm-hmm. developed educationally for parishes to understand the connection between racism and education, racism and housing, voting, mm-hmm. what is systemic racism, giving Catholics a vocabulary and a framework to think about these questions and think through them with their friends, with their neighbors, and then people with whom they don't know. And so how can I, the, how can you respond um, to this question? The, the documents and the resources offer some practical suggestions. So let me just talk about a couple of those. First of all, um, you can find all these resources at usccb.org 
forward slash racism, usccb.org forward slash racism. We've highlighted them on social media through the Minnesota Catholic Conference as well. But let me just address these main four points that they call Catholics to do to respond. First, listen to and know the stories of our brothers and sisters who have suffered from racism in history and in the present. We can talk all we want and and think about what we think other people are thinking and feeling, but Mm -hmm. have we really listened to the experiences of those around us? I mean, just that conversation with Gloria. I've known Gloria for a number of years, and every time we talk about these issues, you know, just getting deeper and deeper into that perspective and what Mm -hmm. she experiences, for example, is so helpful for me. Right. The second thing, work to address both individual and systemic racism. And so that's eradicating that sin from our heart, but then understanding and looking at the ways in which it affects the broader society and then thinking about how you can make a difference or commit to understanding those issues better and being an advocate uh, against racial disparities and combating racial disparities. Next, think about what you can do wherever you are. Commit to, it says, commit to raising your awareness both as people of faith, in your family, and at school or work. What are the easy, practical things you can do? That's going to be different for everyone in their unique context, but here are some practical suggestions that are offered in the context of these resources. And then finally, as individuals and communities of faith, examine your conscience. Maybe they should have said that first. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Um, How are we responding to this particular question, this particular cultural moment? So a lot of resources, again, those can be found at usccb.org forward slash racism, but an important moment for the Church of the United States to bring an active voice, an engaged voice on this question. Rachel, do you want to add anything else to this important discussion? No, I think I would just, examination of conscience is is huge, and I think, you know, we've mentioned this before in our podcast, but starting everything with prayer, because really this is ultimately going to take conversion of hearts, and so um, ask the Lord to, to enlighten your heart into ways that that you need to change or, or ways that you can love your neighbor better. And, yeah, and converting our own hearts, but then going out and being able to convert others mm-hmm. and foster conversion in others on mm-hmm. these questions and to have the gifts and the tools and the resources and the mm-hmm. frame of mind to be able to do that. So prayer, yeah. of course, is the, the way to start. So an important question, open wide our hearts. Again, those resources are available at usccb.org forward slash racism. We'll be back in a moment to talk about ways in which we can translate faith into action. Today, listeners are going to get a double dose of the bricklayer segment. We had kind of an informal bricklayer segment a moment ago about how to combat mm-hmm. racism, right? Um, but we also wanted to speak to um, the the concrete uh, the things that are happening at the legislature this year. Session is underway. Uh, we're into it already. It's up mm-hmm. and running, and uh, a flurry of bills and things have already been introduced, and there's a lot happening. Uh, Catholics of the Capitol is coming up as well in just mm-hmm. a couple of weeks, February 19th. You can still have time to register at catholicsatthecapital.org. But what's going on at the Capitol that people should be aware of, Rachel, and what can we do, uh, practically speaking, to bring that voice for life and dignity into the public arena? Sure. So if you listened to our last podcast, um, if you haven't, you can still go back and listen to it. But we talked about taking some time to sit down and really pray over the principles of Catholic social teaching to have the Lord kind of convict your heart to practical things or issues that you're passionate about in your community. So as Jason said, session is up and and running and there's things happening. Um, Your legislators are working on things. And so if you haven't done so already, we've said this in some other of our podcasts, but if you haven't done so already, reach out 
to your legislators. This is a time that they, um, it's good for them to hear from you at the beginning when they're starting to work on a number of things, on a number of issues. And so you can reach out to your legislators. If you if you need their information, you can find who your legislators are, your representative and your senator um, in the state of Minnesota. You can go to mncatholic.org and click um, find your legislator that's going to be under the Take Action tab. And so when you reach out to them to make it really practical and easy, in that conversation, it can be a short conversation, but you can say, you know, this is who I am. If you if you haven't introduced yourself yet, or if you don't know them already, this is who I am. This session, I'm concerned about these particular issues. You know, maybe they're the issues that you prayed about. Maybe they're the issues that you have seen um, in the news or seen on our website or different things that you're passionate about. Say, these are three issues that I'm concerned about. And then ask your legislator, what are you working on? Um, so that it can be a two-way street and so that you can really see what your legislator is working on as well. So that's just a really practical way um, a small thing that you can do this session to to begin and walk with your legislators through session. Most legislators are at the Capitol because they were passionate about two, maybe three things, and that's what propelled them to run for office in the first place. But there are thousands of bills that are introduced every year at session, and they need to know what you're concerned about. What do their constituents think mm-hmm. is important? Because they need to fill the rest of their agenda and mm-hmm. their views on everything with what their constituents are really thinking if they want to be responsive. And indeed, they really do care what you think about. I can't tell you how many times I've had legislators tell me that a lot of people in their district are talking to them about a particular issue. And then I ask how many, and they say five. <laughs> um, yeah. So five, even five people can really raise the profile of an issue in front of a legislator. And this year it's it's super important because we have a ton of new members at the Capitol, mm-hmm. right? So yep. we had a big House election and uh, almost 40 new members in the mm-hmm. House this year due to retirements and people losing elections, et cetera, et cetera. We have a new governor. Uh, so really an important time for Catholics to start forming those relationships and it's easy. You can go find your legislator on the website at mncatholic.org, as Rachel said, and then you know, what are two or three issues that are on your mind? They don't have to be the issues that the Catholic Conference is mm-hmm. talking about, but what are things that you're really concerned about and how can you form those friendships and those relationships with your legislator because they want to hear from you? Mm-hmm. And we've talked a lot about being a resource to your legislators on this podcast um, over the course of our episodes, and this is the time to be a resource. This is the time to really reach out to your legislators if you haven't done so and, and let them know that you're there to be a resource. Um, and Jason had mentioned Catholics at the Capitol coming up um, really soon in, in February, and that'll be another chance for you to connect with your legislator. So what a great opportunity to start a relationship or make a contact now and then be able to follow up with them again when you go see them with the rest of your uh, legislative district when you come to Catholics at the Capitol. So there's still time to register. Registration closes February 3rd. So register today um, for Catholics at the Capitol. Register as soon as possible and begin that relationship with your legislator. And you can do that at www.catholicsatthecapitol.org. Yeah, come here, Gloria. Come here, the man who played Jesus himself, Jim Caviezel in The Passion <laughs> of the Christ, Archbishop Charles Chaput, one of our foremost Uh, public thinkers on the role of faith in the public arena Mm -hmm. um, and a great lineup of local Catholics and other leaders uh, who want to help equip you to be that resource that Mm -hmm. the church calls us all to be missionary discipleship in the public arena. Again, registration for Catholics at the Capitol closes February 3rd, and you can do so at Catholics at the Capitol. Capitol is with an O-C-A-P-I-T-O-L, Catholics at the Capitol dot org.
Again, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM for the use of their studios to record our podcast and our sponsor for this episode of The Bridge Builder, the State Council of the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. Thank you for listening. Make sure to share this podcast with all your friends and family and including some of your enemies too. We are on SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and if there's another podcast platform that I'm thinking are missing, we're there too. What better way to end our podcast of great conversation with great sacred music? Here's Unused Day by Charles Marie Widor, a French organist, composer, and teacher. He passed away in 1937 at the age of 93. Performing Unused Day, the Lamb of God, is the National Catholic Youth Choir at St. John's Abbey and University. Thanks for listening. God bless you. <laughs>